a few games and kind of ups and downs, and they hit a stride, and they're really pretty good. They beat KU. That got my attention. That's not easy to do, though there's a rivalry. Uh, K-State will sometimes surface as the victor, but normally it's KU. This year, K-State won, and then the next time they played, it was extremely tight. I thought it would be a KU blowout. It was very tight. We get into the tournament. They win. They win. Elite Eight. Go and play in New York. And if, if you're just following this at 30,000 feet, you'd be thinking, wow, this is it's a pretty good team this year. You know, it's K-State coming on with the, the hoops. They had a good football season, but basketball now? I, and what was that guy's name like? Bruce Weber, that's right, their old coach. And they got a new coach. And but it's remarkable if you're not at 30,000 feet, but if you're about 10,000 feet or down on the level. Jerome Tang started the year with two players. <laughs> it takes five. <clears throat> If you're going to win, you're going you're gonna to need five most of the time. Uh, and they, they started the year, and after Bruce Weber left, most of the team left. Drum Tank started with two players, and that's what he had to, to, to build on. So he had to go do the recruiting, the transfer portal, and, and then bring this team together. It's one thing to go recruit a whole college basketball team. It's a whole nother level. And some of you are in leadership or coaching, and you know it's not just getting the right players. It's getting the right players to play right <laughs> together. Uh, and he did this. It, it is a remarkable story. And in some ways, illustrative, we're going to think about tonight. But though it is remarkable getting two players and then building on them into an elite eight team, he did have two players. And they could play. They, they had legs and arms and were coordinated and scholarships and all the rest. When we think about Jesus' disciples and we think about our own lives, and we recognize Jesus calling us, and we look at Peter and the others around him, we recognize that Jesus didn't even have that to work with. And that's sort of the point. That it wasn't as if we were already players. It wasn't as if we had any skill at all. These two players could make free throws. They could dunk. They could hit three-pointers. They had all the defensive skills necessary to play at an elite college basketball program. That's not the case with us. And we see that in Peter and the others around him, that when Jesus, even here, has trained them and been with them, what we see on full display Thursday of Holy Week is these disciples in their weak faith, human limitations. Tonight I want to think with you about our own limitations. This is not a popular message. This is not a theme that we often like to think about. But this is just what the scriptures have of the disciples on Thursday night. In the most intense time, there's failure. The, the time when it would be great to have a hero alongside Jesus, a companion, 
There's no one. And the most bold of them speaks but doesn't act. Proclaims and fails. It's weak faith. But there's great hope here for us tonight as well. It's not just discouragement. There's great hope. In fact, tonight, tomorrow night, Sunday morning, asking the question, why can we be confident? Why can we be sure the church will endure modern challenges? When we think about modern challenges, a quick scan of the news, a brief look at the world today, and we recognize there are challenges all around, and it's easy to be discouraged. And how can we be sure that the church is going to endure this? It's a legitimate question. Well, I want to look with you tonight at Matthew's gospel. We've read some already, Matthew 26. I want to look at just a couple of sections here, beginning in verse 26, going down, or verse 31 and going down through verse 46 of Matthew 26. And I want to notice with you the weak faith and human limitations of the disciples. And I want to notice with you as well that these are not, though they are pronounced and on display here, These are not in any way detrimental to God's plan. God is working through them, despite them. And we see here these as a backdrop for the redemptive power of God. There will be places in each of these two sections that we're looking at, beginning here in verse 31 and then continuing on through, First, the statement that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And Peter's strong confidence that he will not turn away. And the disciples following suit. There's a word of gospel hope here in the midst of Peter's obvious failure. And then we turn right to a further instance of weakness. Human weakness and simple tiredness. And there, Jesus speaking to them about the Son of Man in all of His power. And here, Jesus proclaiming His greatness. How can we be sure the church will endure modern challenges? Our weak faith and our human limitations will not impede God's redemptive purposes. Notice with me in the text. Again, verses 31 through 35. Jesus states it forthright. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, 
I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Jesus referenced to Zechariah 13.7 recalls the context of the prophet and the, the Lord's statement about striking this shepherd and the sheep of Israel scattering as a way of refining them with a view to ultimately bringing them back. And that very well may be brewing in the back of Jesus' mind. We here notice perhaps some of the details of what Jesus says. Primarily the details that we would notice are these personal, interrelational ones. Peter's bold faith back and forth with Jesus, the climax with all the disciples saying the same thing, and their confidence, we will never, we will never, though you've predicted it, we, we will never. Don Carson summarizes the idea, in laying out in advance much of the tragedy of the coming hours, this section shows that Jesus is not a blind victim of fate, but a voluntary sacrifice. And simultaneously, he is preparing his disciples for their dark night of doubt. This is not outside of God's control. Their weak faith does not surprise Jesus. He says to them what they are going to do. You're going to fail. This is going to happen. But there's another detail to notice. It's in the shadow of the quote from Zechariah 13, 7. It's in verse 32. After I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. There are two phrases in verse 32. Both are important. The first one gets our attention after I've been resurrected. Yes, this is Jesus' statement about his resurrection. He's hinted at this along the way. And we understand in reading the whole story, he is resurrected. He is the victor. And, and yes, we, we praise him for this. We recognize this. But what else does he say? I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And what should get our attention, and we'll come back to this Sunday morning, that is exactly what Jesus does. I will go ahead of you. You're going to fail, and I'm not rejecting you. That's the point. You are going to fail. All of you are. And afterward, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. This is... Outstanding in Matthew 28 as well. After Jesus is raised and the women come to the tomb and they first see an angel and then Jesus meets them as they're departing. Matthew 28, 8, departing quickly, these women ran from the tomb with fear and great joy. They were ready to tell the, the disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them. Good morning, he said. 
They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. This is the right response, the resurrected Lord, and they are in a, a posture before him of bowing down. But notice what Jesus says in verse 10. Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. What do you think would ring in the back of their minds? Zechariah 13, 7 is what would ring in the back of their minds. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I'm resurrected, I'll see you in Galilee. You're going to fail, and I will gather you there. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will scatter. They'll be refined, and I'll see you in Galilee. This is a word of gospel hope for you. Your weak faith does not inhibit God's redemptive plan. I'll see you in Galilee. When you think about Galilee, you think about good news. This is a resurrected Savior who knows my failures, my weakness, in moments when it would have been really good to be strong. And I'll see you in Galilee. But it's not just weak faith, it's human limitations that, that are on display Thursday night. But those human limitations don't inhibit God's plan either. Verses 36 through 46. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. He told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. We're familiar with the passage, and we'll walk through to verse 46 in stages, stopping at certain points and noticing the building and the tension and drama here. But first, make sure that, that you pay attention to Jesus gathering up Peter, James, and John, verse 37. When we think about the framework of the apostles and the 12 that are with Jesus, we recognize that Peter is the leader of them. It's already been displayed here. But James and John are often there in the mix. In fact, here just we would scan back a few chapters earlier in Matthew. It's the Mount of Transfiguration where those three are together. Peter, James, John, and Jesus. So if we're just doing the math on the flow of Matthew, what do you think these guys were brewing on as they went away with Jesus? I can just imagine them. You three come with me. They start looking at each other. You remember the last time they were with him? He glowed, man. He glowed. Right? Moses and Elijah talked with him, and we heard it, and we heard God's voice. You got your, you got your iPhone on? You got, you got to record this thing. You ready? I think in the back of their minds, we're going to see something cool. There has been mounting tension here. We got an opportunity. 
And Jesus tells them. He's, he's already distressed in verse 37. My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. This is a very different scene. In fact, it's exactly opposite. Remain here and stay awake with me. That's the only instruction. Just remain here and stay awake. These guys had to have a, just a level of pitched excitement at this moment. Humanly speaking, they had seen Jesus transfigured. They had seen Moses and Elijah. At that point, Peter, in all his glory, I will build something for you, just so you know what to say, a voice from heaven. This was magnificent, and maybe that's in the back of their mind. This would be a moment where if they were ever able to stay awake, this would be it. Going a little farther, he fell, he fell face down and prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He came back to his disciples. Human limitation. If there's any human limitation, it's time isn't it? It's time. If there's any human limitation, it's time. We all get tired. Every human has to sleep at some point to let our bodies get refreshed. That's because our bodies are on a cycle of time. Our bodies, their very organic level, require rest. And that rest happens when we sleep. There's a rejuvenation when we're actually sleeping. Notice who Jesus directed his attention to in verse 40. Right to Peter. In speaking directly to Peter, we recognize who's he really speaking to. Everyone. Because if Peter can't stay asleep, and Peter is the bold leader of the group. Couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The passage continues in dramatic fashion. Matthew teases this out, I think, writing in a, a loquacious way here, giving all the details. This could have been summarized very briefly, but notice the text, verse 42. Again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again, human weakness. And notice the, the language. They could not keep their eyes open. They could not. It's human weakness. It's inability. It's having fingers and toes and a heartbeat and everything else that goes with it. We are human. Human weakness. They can't stay awake. Verse 44, 
Are you seeing that this, this could have been summarized so much more quickly? Just, I'm not questioning the authority of Scripture. I'm not in any, Just recognize what's here and what's not. And this could have been summarized in just a few phrases. So if it isn't, we have to ask, well, why not? And what is here? Leaving them, he went away a third time. Same thing. Matthew's making a point here about human inability. And notice Jesus' language, verse 45, are you still sleeping and resting? In other words, the state of affairs that you are in has not changed. I three times have gone away to pray about this night and asking God to take this from me, but submitting myself to His will every time. There's triplet of submission and a triplet of sleep. There, th that's the drama here. That's the tension. But their sleepiness would not be the last word. What is? The Son of Man is on His way to suffer and die and rise. He's being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Look at verse 46. Verse 46. Get up. Let's go. I mean, we have used athletic imagery already tonight, but we could just tease this out even more. What do you see on the sidelines on the, over and over again when the team is you can, if you're daring to read their mouths at times on the sidelines, not always a good idea. Let's go. Let's go. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Let's go. That, that should get our attention. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hand of sinners. Look, my betrayer is at hand. Let's get out of here. Let's go. This is a model of courage. Let's go. You're sleeping. I'm awake. And I know exactly what I'm doing. This is a word of grace. You're asleep and God's redemptive plan continues on. Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor in their book, The Final Days of Jesus, point it just succinctly. In this Jesus' darkest hour, he models for his disciples and future believers the cost and necessity of full submission to the will of God. Submission is not always pleasant and often painful, but it is always worth it. Jesus turns to his disciples only to find them sleeping. If you're ever preaching a sermon on this, you've got two points, submission and sleep, and a third one, the Son of Man. I've tried to set out tonight why we can be sure the church will endure modern challenges. And the idea will be unpacked more tomorrow and Sunday morning as well, but enough for us to think tonight about our own inabilities, our own weak faith. And if that Thursday night 
there was such pronounced weakness of faith and human limitations, I think we can be confident in God's work through us. I want to summarize just in application the doctrine of salvation for us. That's what we see here, I think, that the doctrine of redemption and, and what we have. And I want to make four statements about it if you have room on your note sheet or on the back side. I want to summarize the doctrine of salvation in four different headings and let these be encouragement for us. I think it's helpful whenever we look at the stories of the Gospels, and I don't mean stories in terms of being made up. I mean that in the general sense of a narrative, of historical account that is written under the inspiration of the Spirit by a, an author so that we get the point here. Again, Matthew is writing in such a way to make a point. This three times over, back and forth, uh, this, this should get our attention. That's, that's a part of it. But I think as well, after we do that, we sort of land in the fertile field of Christian doctrine, just settling there so that we can have some concrete roots for our faith, not, not just the account, not just the story, though that's important and we should tease that out for all it's worth, just to land in some firm, categorical kinds of statements. I think these are important for us in the ups and downs of, of our days, to sure us some firm footing. So four here for you, and think of these if you're a builder, sometimes there's a, a, a four corners to some complex or building, and you've got to put those pylons deep into the ground. And that's, that's what I want to do here for us for a few moments. So number one, the doctrine of election is here. The doctrine of election. That is to say, God choosing people to be his. And earlier we thought about Jerome Tang and the the situation at K-State, and we recognize he inherited a couple of players. He had to go find a whole bunch. But they were still players. I mean, he, he, if he had to make a choice, those two may have been on his radar. They could shoot, they could dunk, they could make three-pointers and dribble behind their back, all the rest. And what we settle upon is that as Peter and the other disciples there, when Jesus tells them, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. When they're sleeping at night, that portrays us. On a basketball court, we couldn't make a basket to save our lives. We could not dribble. We would try and we would miss the ball. We would hit air balls every time. In, in spiritual terms, that's us. And God chose people like us. That's what he chose. Jerome Tang did not go choose a bunch of kids who couldn't play when he started to make choices. <laughs> i got to find the best players possible. What is their vertical leap? What is their wingspan? How fast can they move 10 feet this way, 10 feet that way? Can they stop a dribbler? What can they do to block a shot? I need skill. And God looks at us and says, 
I'll take you. I'll take you in your moral bankruptcy. I'll take you in your weak faith and your mind. These kind of categorical statements we read uh, throughout the epistles. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers, consider your calling, consider your election. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful. You could not make a basket, you could not dribble, not many noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things. God goes to the, the, the food counter and gets the guy who's got two hands full of popcorn and hot dogs and says, you. The guy's looking around, me? I've never played basketball. I'm just here to, no, you, come. Get on there. That's who God chooses. He's chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so that He might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something. God's goal is glory, and He glorifies Himself by transforming people who have no courage and no character, and He steals their spine so that afterward people can look and say, this had to be God. That's the doctrine of election in all of its outworking. God chooses the foolish things so that no one can boast in His presence. But from Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. This is the doctrine of election. God chooses, and He chooses those who are outsiders, not the, the ones who would seem like insiders. He chooses. He chooses the weak. He chooses the needy. Number two, regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. That is the doctrine of new birth. That God, from the inside out, changes the sinner's will to want Him and forgiveness because they recognize their need. Regeneration is an emotional experience, but it is a cognitive activity. It is full of logic. In the Bible, regeneration is a logical process. It's not the sense that it's this ongoing long, but in that moment and in the sphere of life when someone is born again, they're doing the math spiritually. And what they recognize is that I need God. Their, their language doesn't have to be technical. It doesn't have to be sort of 16th century or in Latin or, or something like that. They don't have to quote the church fathers to get it. Basically, it's in a, a phrase, I need you. I need you. I, I recognize my limitations, my weakness, and I need you. I need to be changed, and I can't change myself. I need a new birth. It's, it's new and birth together. There's newness, and that newness is so profound that it's like birth. <laughs> There's no other way to talk about the change being so radical as birth. 
new birth. I, I need a change. I need a complete change. I need an overhaul. And I can't do I can't fix this. I need you to do it. To be born again. Election and regeneration. And Jesus is adamant about this. Remember to Nicodemus. I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Regeneration leads us to think about the doctrine of the Spirit. If we would just put these together for a moment, we recognize that regeneration is such a profound Christian idea because of who's doing the birthing. It's the Spirit doing the birth. That's why we can always recognize when someone is changed. It's because of who's changing them. It's not as if they just wised up on their own and that wisdom could leave them the next day. You've seen people like that. They got a new idea and full of energy. Ten minutes later, they're asleep. This is the power of God in us. That's regeneration. Election and regeneration. And God does this to people who are weak, who are needy, who are limited. This is why I'm hopeful that the church will endure. Do you see that we're looking in a mirror tonight and we're looking back in time? Tonight's mirror and scrapbook. Tomorrow night, we'll look outside. But tonight's just mirror and scrapbook. <laughs> look at what I was. Look at who I am. And I still want God, and He's still working through me. If He's done this in my past, in me right now, I am full of hope. How could I not be hopeful? I mean, it's almost wrong to even ask the question, will the church endure? Look at what God's done with me. i got to go find somebody to share the gospel with. Amen. Look at what I was. If I can't dribble that well, but at least I'm, I'm walking down the court now. Not tripping over my shoes. I hit the basket occasionally. Number three, the church. Election, regeneration in the church, you might think that's kind of an odd category for the doctrine of salvation. Perhaps in some, some ways. But if we are dealing with the New Testament well, to talk about salvation and not talk about the church really isn't to talk about. It's not that the church is the Savior, but the saved are the who we are. It's talking about the church. And what is fascinating is you read through the narrative of any of the Gospels and right into Acts, we see that election and regeneration work out into the, the church. And we see the power of the Spirit in the church. So, so dramatic is the shift from here just before Jesus is crucified and the weak faith and human limitations. There are still human limitations and there are ups and downs of faith, but isn't Acts 3 pretty glorious and 4? 
Peter's a different man, brothers and sisters. He's a different man. So full of courage. So strong. And others with him and the church in all of its boldness and strength. The church isn't perfect, but the church is the renewed, regenerated people of God who have the Spirit in them. That's what makes the church different from the other societies of the world. It's that we have the Spirit. And the Spirit then changes our orientation. In in Acts 2, don't overlook the, the end of Acts 2. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Almost as if just being together in nights like this were the very stuff of what life is all about. It's almost as if by the end of Acts 2, there's such fulfillment that just the Spirit in this person and this person, and you're getting to interact with them and see God's satisfaction in them working out, just sitting around the table, is almost so captivating that it would be like, this is what I'm living for. This is my life. Fame, fortune, power, pleasure. I'd give that all away if I could just see my brothers and sisters eat around the table and experience God with them. That's the church. So many evangelicals that we just need to repent of small thinking about the church. The world's so captivating in all of our activity. The church just becomes a calendar event and acts too. It's the event that organizes everyone's calendar. It's the calendar itself. Number four, death and glory. There are very few gatherings where anyone's going to give you straight talk about your last day. There's a logical sequence to election, regeneration, the church, and death and glory. We're in April. Two things are certain in life, right? It's funny how much more we talk about taxes, though, than death. Maybe it's because taxes are a part of our economic system and all we do and run and run and run and go. But you need to understand tonight, a part of what we're talking about with limitations is the limitation of the number of heartbeats that you have and that I have. It is finite. There, we do step counters on our devices and we, we can quantify so many facets of our life and if you if you're careful if you rather if you're not careful those data points that just add up can overshadow the one real data point the last day of your life 
death. Christian is not to be feared, though. I said death and glory. And we need in our lives to mark it well that for believers, all the data that we can calendar and quantify and let run our lives sometimes, we need to recognize there is much more to come than here. That's where the party begins. And that is for the church, those who have the Spirit, those who've been chosen by God. Election, regeneration, the church, death, and glory. Are you ready to die? There's a sense in which you can evaluate your spiritual life if everything just stops for a moment and you look up and say, it's okay, God, I'm ready, I'm ready. When you get that item that is just captivating your attention, whether it's a promotion, a thing, a relationship, whatever it is, and while you have it, you can look up and say, I'm ready. This is nothing. You take it. Death is the beginning. Of the not yet, that's not yet. There's more to come. If you enjoy the Spirit now, what does Paul say in Romans 8? <laughs> if we hope for what we see, who hopes for what they see? We hope for what we do not see, and we eagerly wait for it with patience. Even so, come Lord Jesus. This is just the beginning. And so if it is, let's live like it. Let's put all of our calendar, all of the data of life in the shadow of one number, the last date on our tombstones, and go and be happy. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, Jesus said, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Would you pray with me?